Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 17. This is God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses. Twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel. And all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. And then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked, and each man took his staff, and the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses. As the Lord commanded him, so he did. (laughs) And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish! We're undone! We're all undone! Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die! Are we all to perish? Yes, it's supposed to be that melodramatic. (laughs) That was read correctly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you give light to your word? Thank you that you've already spoken in its reading. We ask that you would now speak in its preaching. Give us faith where our faith is weak. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. If you study history, periodically you come across those Unique figures in history that have unique minds capable of brilliance and excellence in a way that is just staggering. I love reading about those people. You read about Marie Curie. I mean, what a genius that lady was. Einstein and others. Brilliant as they are, not pertinent to this text perhaps, but one name is George Gillespie. There are a couple in here that might go, ooh, I know George Gillespie. I remember that name. Most of you, I'm assuming, don't. Uh, Gillespie is not a name that your average household uh, Christian would know, but perhaps maybe should. 
He was born in 1613. He died in 1648. Very significant years. He was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, but one of his most important claims to fame is that he was the youngest member of the Westminster Assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, actually, we know exactly the part that he worked on, and he was one of the primary authors of chapter 1. Boy, that's a rough year of 29, isn't it? to write Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, one of the greatest portions of literature ever constructed by a non-inspired human. Well, that's probably his most frequently referenced work. It's probably not his most famous. His most famous work dealt with one of the subjects that he was most zealous about, which was trying to understand the relationship between church and state. Are they separate or are they together? And in the time in which he lived, the majority view was that the church and state were not identical, but were intimately related, closer than cousins. In fact, actually, the standard view at the time was that the state was in some function the head of the church. It was the state's job to enforce the discipline, not just of the state, but to enforce the discipline of the church. So the time in which he lived, if, if you stole something, you were punished by the state. But if you were excommunicated, you were also punished by the state. They were, in some sense, inseparably linked Not, as so many today see them as kind of concentric circles that really shouldn't interact very frequently. Gillespie, one of the great geniuses of the Western, I mean, of the Westminster Assembly, spent his entire very brief but very bright career, he died young, his very brief and very bright career, laboring to get the church to understand that the church and the state were two separate kingdoms. The state has no authority over the church and has no authority for her governance. His most famous book, actually, on this subject is called Aaron's Rod Blossoming. You can see maybe why that would be pertinent. It's an exegesis of Numbers chapter 17, a bunch of different passages, and Jeremiah and a bunch of other places. It's exceptionally complex. The dude is way smarter than I am. Providentially, even prior to getting to this point, Brandon and I started working through it in staff meeting. It's been slow going, as Gillespie's a bit more of an intellectual giant than either of us are, that's for sure. His argument, though, in some fashion, is that because of number 17 and other places, it's easy for us to see that God commands church government. And the primary reason why God commands church government is because God is the authority over all governments, church or state. He he is the primary authority government, so to speak, if we were going to use a ridiculous term to refer to God's authority. He was basically built his entire life around that idea that God is sovereign over his church. And the king or the queen 
or the president or the vice president or the parliament or the Congress or the Senate should have no say over the Lord's church because Christ alone is Lord and King of the church. Now, that's what his entire book is about. I just preached my entire sermon in the introduction. Well, time to go home. Well, let's go eat food. No, there's more to this chapter than simply that. Uh, I kind of made that point last week in some sense, and I, I suspect more going on in Numbers chapter 17. You see, the, the real kind of, I think, important part when you look at a chapter like this This is a really important chapter, but one nobody ever remembers. This is one of the trick questions on my ordination exam. Where is Aaron's rod blossoming? Number, you know, chapter, uh, uh, book and chapter. I'm like, I don't remember. This is one of the important ones? No, this absolutely is one of the important ones. In fact, actually, by the end of this, Aaron's staff is placed in the Ark of Covenant with manna and with the Ten Commandments. That's how important it was to God. Which is interesting because it's not really important to me. I don't remember it easily or naturally. But I guess to begin to understand that, we have to again have that bit of brief review, which is to set the stage that what's taking place in Israel's history at that time, at this time, the kind of background radiation, so to speak, or if you're watching a play, the setting in the background is one of constant complaining, constant grumbling. It's a reoccurring theme. It happens over and over and over and over again. In the previous chapter, we have one of the most just spectacular examples of it, where the Lord actually has the ground open and eat people alive. And I love the text notes that, right? The ground opens up. It sucks them down alive. It closes over them while they're still alive, and they die in the depths of the earth. And the entire nation of Israel makes it a day before they're complaining again. I mean, just on pure superstition, I think I would probably want to last longer than a day. I probably wouldn't. Apart from Christ, I know I wouldn't. But just on pure superstition, like, I don't want to be eaten. Call me crazy. I don't want that. But yet, we've seen it over and over and over and over again. Complaining, 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 complaining. Until we get to chapter 17, and in some sense here, the Lord's kind of getting ahead of it. He knows these are a people that complain. In fact, actually, the next time we see it show up in complaining, it's Moses that joins in. These are a people that grumble against him. These are a people that are rebelling against him. The background setting of a people that like to complain, but why do they like to complain is the issue. Is it just because they're like venting constantly? They're just verbal processors. They've got to talk about life. No, in fact, actually, what's happening here is that you have a people that are anti-authority in their very spirit. There are people that don't like to be told what to do, which I find is interesting because for the last several hundred years, they've been slaves in Egypt where they've only been told what to do. This is the first time that Egypt hasn't been telling them what to do. They're brought out into the wilderness by God himself, the one who has, you know, killed all of the Egyptians, had the ocean eat them, now having the ground eat them, and they just continue to complain against God. But what's happening is a people that, that in their very heart, they just don't like being told what to do, which I find makes this very endearing book. Because as you read it, you're like, man, it's like I'm reading Twitter. (laughs) 
It's like Instagram. Right there in front of me, it's like I'm watching the news of people that just don't like to be told what to do. Now, it's wrapped in all sorts of other arguments and illustrations, but just don't like to be told what to do. I saw one example of this this week. It was absolutely amazing. One of those moments where I can't believe they're actually saying this. A young lady in the conversation about abortion, which our nation is currently having uh, kind of all over the place, made this statement, and this is a direct quote. It doesn't matter if a fetus is alive. I hate that word. It should be called a baby. It doesn't matter if a fetus is alive. It doesn't matter if a fetus is a human. It doesn't even matter if a fetus is legally a person. It comes down to the fact that no born person has the right to use of my body against my wishes, and even fetuses don't get special rights. Like, daggone, all right. Wow. You want to talk about being ungovernable. You want to talk about being anti-authority. You're talking about a nation that at its core is saying, look, I get to do whatever I want with my body, with my mind, with my heart, with my will. It does not matter. You cannot tell me what to do. You can't. You can't tell me what to do. Makes pastoring always complicated, doesn't it? Trying to figure out how do we have a, a, a relationship with a people where God is telling us what to do when inherently we don't want to listen We've been telling our nation for 40 years that you're special and your opinions matter and you should follow your dreams at all costs because your inner reality is the highest and greatest truth. And friends, if your inner reality is the highest and greatest truth, no one can govern you, including God himself. And I love how often we're like, well, I'm not in that. I'm like, I mean, that describes my kids. I get it. It doesn't describe me. I'm easy to tell what to do. And then I always like kind of in parentheses, I'm easy to tell what to do as long as I agree. Once I disagree, well, then I get difficult, really. To have an honest kind of assessment of a text like this, we do need to begin with that kind of realistic, honest consideration of our own heart. How well do you handle being told what to do? How well do you handle it? Because the reality of the matter is the fact that we even have a category for not doing what we're told to do is proof of the fact that we live in the wealthiest time in human history, with the greatest nation in human history, with the most freedom in human history. And we don't have a king. We have a government that tries to act like it, but they're not doing a very good job of acting like a king. I don't have to do what they're telling me to because I'm not going to, because I'm ungovernable, because I don't like authority. You see, the the big issue here is that secretly and sometimes not quite so secretly in my own heart and in your heart, we believe we are our own gods. We don't like to think about it in those terms, and we don't like to think about it very often because we know that if we ever had a job performance review, we would fail. I am my own God. I'm just doing a really rotten job with it because if I were doing a better job, I'd be happier. Right? I'd have more money. 
Things would be easier. I wouldn't ever cry. I would never be sick. Neither would you, because I like you. It'd be easy. But the reality of the world in which we live, it kind of comes to terms for us very quickly. We see that though I might want to be in charge, I'm not. Only God is. Israel's in process of learning this lesson. They've chosen at this point to learn it the hard way. They've had plagues go through. They've had the ground to open up and eat them, and they're still not learning. So, number 17, the Lord kind of gets ahead of it, knowing that they are a people who complain, knowing they are a people who complain against Moses and complain against Aaron and complain against Miriam. And I love one of the chapters we skipped a little bit earlier. Rather than complain about Moses, they start in on his wife like she's done something wrong to get to Moses. So the Lord says, all right, we're going to stop this. We're going to get ahead of the complaining. In fact, actually, this way I won't have to kill them. They're all grumbling people. Let's stop the complaining. Get a staff from the head of each tribe, 12 tribes, 12 staffs. Write the name of the chief there, probably the half-tribe sharing, I'm guessing, and take the staffs and put them before the altar of God into the Holy of Holies, into the place where God would meet with Moses, into the place that only Moses and Aaron themselves were allowed, into the place that you died if you stepped. And the Lord commands them to place that there so that everyone would know who's in charge Is it Moses that's just the master tyrant who's figured out how to wrangle this, you know, motley crew of people across the desert? Is it Aaron who's the power behind the throne? He's the mouthpiece. Is it Miriam, the sister, who's, you know, the ultimate manipulator? Who's in charge of this shindig? What's running this crazy train? And the Lord shows, no, you know what? I am. I'm the one who's been in charge. I've been in charge from the beginning. I spoke the world into existence. I formed people out of the clay. I am in charge. I am in charge of my people. I've elected them out as a nation of my own. I have placed my name upon them. They will be mine. And as a result, I will govern them the way that I want to govern them. That's actually why the staves are so significant. You have one for each tribe. See, which tribe is the one that's in charge? Who's the boss? But then one specific one, the tribe of Levi, you have actual Aaron's name written on. It's Aaron's actual staff. So that in essence, it's an opportunity for God to choose his own guy. Now, I would have thought that would have been fairly clear by the burning bush. He did that already. I would have thought that would have been fairly clear by the ten plagues. He's done that already. I would have thought that would have been fairly clear by, you know, having the Red Sea eat the Egyptians. He's done that already. I would have thought it would have been very clear by them going up on top of the mountain to meet with God for a year and a half. But uh, at this point, they're still complaining, so okay. They place the staffs before the Holy of Holies, and you get to see this this fantastic miracle. Twelve go in as staffs. Eleven come in as staffs, come out as staffs. One comes out as a tree, effectively. (laughs) No roots. 
but with all the fruit and marks of a healthy, robust tree, so that the Lord can show this is my man when it comes time for religious leadership, when it comes time for what would be fulfilled in the church, when it comes time for that old covenant to be worked out. It's my man that will do it. It's Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. The Levites, he's showing that he's in charge of choosing. He's in charge of his church. We find out in Romans 13 and other places, he's in charge of our government. Find out in the Ten Commandments, he's in charge of our parents, even when they're bad parents. He's in charge of our boss. He's in charge of every authority that has been placed over us. In fact, actually, I love how the confession works this out in the larger catechism, largely. On that command dealing with honor your father and mother, and what they do is they acknowledge that every human, most of us at least, have some relationships in which we are the superior and some relationships in which we are the inferior. Every human, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. Race, gender, doesn't matter. Everybody has some relationships in which we are the superior and some in which we are the inferior. So, when I was young, I was inferior, obviously, to my parents. They were authorities over me, but I was a big brother. I had a younger sister. still do. When we were young, I was her superior. I was older, bigger, probably not smarter, maybe not wiser, but still her older brother. My duties were to my parents to be uh, under their authority and to treat my sister with the kindness as one in authority should. They interestingly structure kind of all relationships within that grid with certain obligations connected to both, acknowledging that all of us are people under authority. And because we're people under authority, We are to live like it. It's to impact every human relationship. In fact, even our divine relationship. Now, the interesting thing, they don't work out in the confession, but our culture has basically done it as a case study. What happens when you don't honor those relationships? What happens when you, you give up the idea of everybody is under somebody's authority? Well, what you end up with is a... 40 years of teaching children, they're the center of the universe, that their ideas are the best ideas, follow your dreams because you're the boss and you're in charge of everything, and the entire society implodes in like 50 years. Because what they understood is that everybody is under someone's authority. So our job is not to be ungovernable. Our job is actually to be governable correctly to follow God's commands in the right way, to be obedient in the right way, to obey in the right way. You see, actually, because we've lost this wholesome arrangement in our culture, it's why marriages end in divorce. It's why parenting is such a trial. It's why our school systems are constantly struggling with new and more bizarre changes. That's why we're having a movement of transgenderism in our young people. 
They know they're unhappy, they just don't know how to fix it. We have a culture that's like a snake eating its own tail. It's just not working. Falling apart. Because we've lost this idea that every authority is derivative from God himself. The boss that you work for that you cannot tolerate has been placed there by God. In fact, actually, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's giving you the person you need. That child that is underneath you, that you are their authority, and they're trying you. More gray hairs every day. It's not my children, just for the record. God's placed them in your life. You are their authority because God has placed you there. He knows what He's doing. He's not making mistakes. It's interesting that for most of kind of church history, they've defined the heights of piety, of of godliness, differently than we do. Prior, not just to the church in America, but other places, I had a conversation about this even this week. They defined usefulness by suffering, not by gifting. In America, we find the most gifted men, we go make them pastors. Not very good at finding those gifted men a lot of times, which is why they implode afterwards. Last 2,000 years, the world church has said, let's find the men who are suffering. Let's make them pastors. Let's take those that are humble, those that are low, let's put them into positions. In fact, actually here, this is one of those areas where in our culture, we have often valued those that are the least submissive. And interestingly, in world church history, the church has placed a particular value upon those that were able to submit even to those that hurt them. And trusting God to be their defender. That's Jesus' point. Roman soldier comes and says, I'm gonna take your pack, go, you know, you take my pack, go walk for a mile. Yeah, that's unfair, it's unjust, it's unkind, it's not cool, go walk extra, serve him anyways. Yeah, he wants to to wrong you? That's fine. Go further. Why? Because our authority is ultimately, it's grounded in God. We're trusting in him. We don't have to be our own avengers. We don't have to be our own defenders. We don't have to constantly be busy with self-protection. You see, again, this is what's happened in our culture because we've placed our dreams, our hearts, our ideas as the ultimate gold standard. We have an entire nation that is just aggressively working to protect our feelings. And we don't have a category anymore in the church for saying, look, I'm just going to trust God. (laughs) He's going to do a better job with it anyways. Yeah, I'm going to probably cry, but I'll be a better man for it because God will defend me even better than I can. I'd love to throw kind of insults at ancient Israel for being this rebellious, ungovernable kind of person, but honestly, it's my own temperament. It's your temperament. This is the land in which we live. We are in South Carolina. Go read our history.
The interesting thing, though, is this kind of this presumption behind it, even in this grumbling, even in this complaining, even in this kind of ungovernable idea where I am my own king, I am my own president, I am my own God, I am my own ruler, is that it, it neglects to remember who God is. It kind of focuses really on me, and it focuses on my own wants, and it focuses on my own desires, instead of it focusing on who God is and what God's teaching me. Because, you know, realistically, this is a people group that the second they start talking about Aaron's staff, they should go, you know, I actually remember something. The Lord's been using that staff really since Exodus. In fact, actually, He's already been doing miraculous things through it. Exodus chapter 7, Moses and Aaron contending before Pharaoh when the Lord says to Moses, and, sorry, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you, Moses, shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and its servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned his wise men, sorcerers. They, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed theirs. I love it. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I, I love the contrast. You get to see how God interacts with his people versus how God interacts with his enemies. He's still doing the same miracle with his staff. He's taking a staff that's just a normal stick. It's a walking stick. Most likely not even that tall of one that I would probably find more useful. Probably a cane, judging by the size of the ark. But interestingly, when God goes to show his enemies who he is, what does he do with the staff? He turns it into a serpent that destroys those in front of him. But when he goes to deal with his people, what does he do? Turn it into one of the most beautiful trees in the region. You ever looked at almond trees before? They're probably the kind of analog to our cherry trees. Absolutely beautiful trees. Lovely to look at and hear what happens overnight. This one, it, dead stick, walking stick, suddenly sprouts. It turns buds, then blossoms, and even blossoms and almonds. It is a robust, healthy branch producing fruit and goodness and delight. Smells good, looks good, tastes good. God's provision. And I get to see, I love how you get to see kind of the contrast of what God's doing with his people. He could have, he could have had Moses bring it out and that one turns into a serpent and then goes around and attacks everybody. We have flaming serpents in this book, it's horrible. But it's interesting he's giving them an object lesson. You grumble and complain. Israel, oh ancient Israel, you grumble and complain. And what is your God to you? He's kind. He's giving. 
He's good to you. He's even in the object lesson he's giving. He's producing something beautiful and something lovely and something beneficial to you, and yet you still grumble and complain. You see, again, the me monster, it gets in our heads, it gets in our hearts, and for a nation and a people that are preoccupied with self, the natural temptations, we then read that onto God, and we stop paying attention to Him, and we pay attention to me. And we forget in the midst of our grumbling, in the midst of our complaining, in the midst of our dissatisfaction, we forget that God loves you. He's being good to you. He's being kind to you even now. One of the joys of being a pastor in a congregation like this, Brandon and I know you. We feel like most of you we know fairly well. I know in this room we have a multitude of problems that are represented. We have physical ailments, some probably too many for me to count, certainly not easily. We have emotional ailments, spiritual ailments, personal ailments, difficulties of all kinds. In fact, actually, we have so many difficulties that if we wanted to be those people that could complain, boy, we'd have a laundry list to do it, wouldn't we? And it's because of that you understand how easy it is for us to then just kind of get a little bit preoccupied with how unhappy I am with that, whatever that is. We forget that sometimes that, whatever that is, is the Lord's great gift to His people. You know, here, they're grumbling and complaining about being taken out into the wilderness, but there's a reason for it. It's because that way they would have nothing to look at but God Himself. It's like an extended mission trip. Right? They could be extra Christians for years. It doesn't work because they don't know the Lord at all. But it's an opportunity for growth. It's interestingly, again, one of those things, if once you're older, you can kind of look back and you think back on those teachers that taught you the most. Right? Usually they were the ones that were the hardest. They were the ones that, that made you stress. You had to, to stay up studying later than you wanted to. You actually had to work. And then when you get older and you begin to reflect on you realize those are the ones that actually taught you something. The easy ones that you really liked, you didn't, you know, they didn't change you. They didn't shape you. They didn't give anything to you but an easier time. And too often we're like that with God. We, we, instead of focusing on how kind He is, how merciful He is, how He gives so many good promises to us, how He gives generously to us, we focus on the difficulties. The interesting thing is actually they're the same thing. It's just how you approach them mentally. Either the Lord gives good gifts, some of them are challenging, or it's just something else I can complain about. Chapter 17, Moses brings out the staffs, verse 9, from before the Lord. These were the ones in his very presence. The congregation marvels in some sense. (laughs) Where do you find that? A staff that suddenly is producing almonds. 
You know, fruit trees in my yard have been there for years. They won't make fruit, and this staff makes it overnight. The interesting thing, though, is what the Lord says in verse 10 is an assessment of sin. Put the staff of Aaron back before the testament. Put it, put it, it's going to go in the Ark of the Covenant eventually. Why? So that it would be a sign for those that are rebellious, so that they will understand that when you grumble, you're grumbling against God. Not your circumstances. You're actually grumbling against the God who gives them. And this is one of those things that, again, I I think we kind of easily forget, is that we think of our sin kind of in the ether. Like it's a thing I do and then it kind of vanishes. And we, we don't think of our sin as personal offense. Like we think of our sin as I do a bad thing. I don't like that bad thing. I feel sad about that bad thing after I do it, but I did a bad thing. Instead of thinking I did a bad thing against God himself. Against him personally, I, I have offended him personally. This is part of what the object lesson to them is, is this staff stays in the Ark of the Covenant so that they understand God has chosen this man, and so they have a visible kind of intellectual reminder God has chosen him. And so when you complain against this man, when you complain against Moses, and when you complain against Aaron and Miriam, the leadership that God has instituted here in this passage, you're not complaining against them, you're complaining against the God who's doing it. Because sin is intensely personal. I suspect this also was why it's sometimes so easy for us to sin. It's because we've forgotten the personal element to it. We've forgotten how intensely personal it is. And we see, again, Israel totally misses the, they they just absolutely misunderstand. God makes this point, we're going to do this so that they stop grumbling against me lest they die. And so Moses did that as the Lord's commanded in verse 11. And then 12 what you would think would be a good response is not. What you would hope the people of Israel would finally get it, and they don't. They have a melodramatic, petulant, childish little temper tantrum. Behold, we perish! We're all undone! We're all undone! If he really was that, friends, the ground would have eaten him in the previous chapter. If God wanted to kill them all, he would have already done it. He had plenty of opportunity to do it. Now, the interesting thing is, is look at, look at their complaint here. Look at their, their concern in verses 12 and 13. Who is the person they reference the most? We perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Six references to themselves, one to God. Because again, who is it all about? It's all about the me monster. It's all about the self. You see what a good biblical response would have been here is, hey, look, God provided a mediator. 
In the previous chapter, you have this amazing moment with Aaron standing between life on one side and death on the other as the only man in between, preparing them for Jesus when he would show up later. They don't get it then. Here, you have Aaron's rod blossoming, a visible portrait for them. Look, God blesses you. He takes care of you. He's providing of you for you. He loves you. He's going to send his son to die for you. And even then, they don't believe. What you have is a people that are preoccupied with self. And because they're preoccupied with self, they miss what God is doing. You see, ultimately, chapter 17 is so important because what Aaron is going to function as is the high priest. He's the one who's going to function as the mediator. He is the man who is going to function in their religious system as the go-between between God and man. He's going to be the guy standing in between God Almighty and this ridiculous group of people named Israel. And so when they are rejecting Aaron, they're rejecting God's mediation. They're rejecting God's man. That's why this generation is treated in Jude and other places as an unbelieving generation. Because if you reject his mediator, you're rejecting God himself. What this is obviously setting us up for is the arrival of Christ. The ultimate mediator, the only mediator, the true stand between, the one who goes between God and man who intercedes for us even now, the one who has taken our sin upon himself, given us his righteousness, the one who is the God-man. And friends, what we don't so often see is that when we complain against God, Really, at some point, we're complaining against Christ. We're complaining against that beautiful mediator that God has given. Instead of marveling at his promises that he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, he's always there with us. Instead of remembering his promises that if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation. That if we're in Christ, no harm can befall us, that God himself is not there with us, that He never slumbers or sleeps when he watches us. All of those promises coming to a rich and robust, happy home in our hearts. You see, actually, I think that's probably what we're going to watch over the next couple of decades in our nation. Is the path between those that are true Christians and those that are just Americans is going to get increasingly wider. And the thing that's really going to define that difference is the idea of any form of contentment. Because we have a nation that because of its relationship with authority, we have a nation and a culture that because of its relationship with the self and our dreams and our desires, we cannot be content. We cannot. Discontentment is a sin, friends. It's not trusting in God's goodness. And to have any sort of contentment is to be as countercultural of a person as you can find in America. To say, look, the Lord has given a good life. I'm happy where he's placed me. I'm just trying to be obedient. 
in the circumstances that he's placed me in. I suspect that idea, just those brief sentences, is going to become an increasingly large gap. And the idea of a person with real, real contentment will become more mythological in our nation. Friends, you don't think about it this way, but your contentment, I suspect, is going to become one of the great tools in your evangelism over the next two decades. Because you're going to be able to say to people, look, I know you're unhappy. Come and see what the Lord does. Find the peace that passes understanding. Find the hope that can survive your dreams. Find the joy that can withstand your sufferings. Find the Savior who can bear your entire life and do it well. As we watch our our nation, our culture, implode upon itself, might we be those Grounded in the work of Christ Jesus, filled by His Holy Spirit, clinging to the Word, might we be those people of joy and hope and peace and gladness. Now, I'm going to acknowledge this very briefly. I know some of us don't do that very well. And if you're in that category, the first thing you need to do is repent. I know you don't tend to think of it this way, but discontent is a byproduct of sin, if not sin itself. Repent. Plead with the Lord to give you contentment. Come talk to your pastors, talk to your shepherding elders, get you reading some Jeremiah Burroughs or something like that, some good book that'll change how you think about what you deserve. Together we might reach a nation that's dying for some sort of happiness that lasts more than a fleeting moment. His name is Christ. Hopefully, they will meet him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess our sin. We are a people that grumbles too easily, a people who complains too quickly. And even as I Preach on contentment. I admit there are probably many in the room who have no idea what that looks like. So in our weakness, would Christ be strong? Would you convict of sin? Would you create contentment where there is discontent? Would you give us hope in your promises? And would you give us eyes that see Jesus as ever more beautiful? that our joys would increase. We pray for Christ's sake, amen.